All right, everyone. If you would go ahead and make your way back towards your seats. I love all of the, the conversation and the interactions. Well, it is. I'm Dennis. I'm one of the pastors here at Garden City. Um, wanted to just start. So we're continuing in our Acts series this morning, but I, I wanted to start by, by I guess, just an, an aside, an invitation. This is absolutely the type of sermon that you can listen to and think it's for someone else. This is absolutely the type of sermon where you could listen to it and think, this person that I work with absolutely needs to hear this. This is like about them. Or this is about someone in my family. Or this is about a relationship. Or this is why I lost that relationship. And I really want to encourage you. Like, what we're going to talk about anger. And oftentimes when we have sermons like this or we have conversations like this, our first thought isn't, oh, let me like do the deep dive and introspective work about what this means for me. We hear it oftentimes and think about other people around us. So an invitation, an opportunity, maybe a request. Listen to this and receive it with soft hearts and try as hard as you can to think of it first and foremost as being for you. So let's pray and we'll start. Father, thank you so much that we can be together this morning. Thank you that as we gather from all across the city, we come as brothers and sisters we come as family. And so, Father, would you, would you be with us now? Would you be at work in us now? Would you be knitting us together as a people? And would you be helping us to know you more and to fall more deeply into love with you? We pray in your son's name. Amen. In the winter of 1977... The residents of Greenfield, Massachusetts, received a strange questionnaire in the mail. It included statements or questions like, try to recall the number of times you became angry during the past week. Or describe the most angry of these experiences. The survey, it was part of a study that was being conducted by a psychology professor named James Avril at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And just to make sure at the very beginning that we're all on the same page about what we're talking about when we use the word anger, this is what the American Psychological Association defines it as. Anger is an emotional state that varies in intensity from mild irritation to intense fury and rage. That's the definition we're working with this morning for anger. An emotional state that varies in intensity from mild irritation to intense fury and rage. Now, Greenfield, Massachusetts was an unlikely place for a psychology professor to study people and anger. It was a middle-class town in 1977. It had a prosperous factory that supported directly and indirectly the lives of almost every resident in town. Churches outnumbered bars two to one. And citizens were known across Massachusetts as being humble, private, and largely content. 
And that's actually the exact reason that Averill decided Greenfield would be the exact right place to conduct this study. Because as a people, they demonstrated such little evidence of widespread anger. Other questions in the survey were, when you felt most angry, what words did you speak? And I'm curious if we did this right now, just as a bit of a reflective exercise. If I was actually asked, saying words and you were like answering them. If you were to think through this past week at a time that you were angry. What words did you speak? In getting angry, did you wish to get back at someone or to get revenge? And how did you feel afterward? Triumphant, confident, dominant, or ashamed? embarrassed, and guilty. Avril's expectations for this survey, the questionnaire, they were really modest. He assumed people who, he assumed people would say that they only maybe occasionally, like a few times a year, lost their temper. And he really thought that most people would get the survey and just throw it in the trash and never respond. But that isn't what happened at all. He actually got thousands of responses to his questionnaire because seemingly people wanted to talk about their experiences with anger. One respondent described the anger she felt when her husband bought a new car because that's when she learned he was being unfaithful. She learned that he was being unfaithful because he drove straight from the dealership to his mistress's house to show her the car first instead of coming straight home and showing the car to her. It was interesting as I was reading the, the study um, that she wasn't actually angry. It, this was funny to me. She wasn't actually all that angry to find out that he had been cheating on her. She had apparently long suspected that. She was angry that the mistress got to see the car first because she was like, I put up with this guy for 30 years. I should get to see the car first. Other people describe feeling angry when a family member refused to do their chores or when a teenage child broke curfew. And Avril, when he had started this study, he thought the study would show anger to be an emotion people only experienced occasionally. And instead, the survey demonstrated that anger is one of the most frequent emotions we experience as humans. And it's at the core of the human experience because our anger can be triggered by both internal and external things that happen in our lives. We can be angry at someone or we can be angry about something that happened. We can be angry about the way that we're spoken to or treated by people or even treated by systems and organizations. We can experience anger because of our personal situations, circumstances, experiences, and past traumas. According to Avril, to be human is to feel anger. Sometimes we feel mildly Ill irritated and sometimes we feel intense fury and rage. Because to be human is to feel anger. 
The question then isn't whether or not we will get angry. I mean, it's worth remembering that Jesus turned over temple, tables in the temple. Jesus himself experienced anger. But Jesus wasn't quick to anger, and he wasn't controlled by anger. He was slow to anger, and even when he was angry, his actions were righteous and just. So the question for us then is not how do we avoid feeling anger. The question is, what does Jesus have to say to us in the midst of our anger and about our anger? What might the biblical authors want to teach us about anger? And can we become people who are, like Jesus, slow to anger? So today we're going to focus on Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. To really make sense of the passage, though, we need to do a little bit of work with what Pastor Shaq taught last week. We need to go back three verses and see the way that Stephen ends his speech to the Sanhedrin. Remember, Stephen's own people have turned on him and launched a coordinated effort to falsely accuse him of wanting to destroy the temple and undermine the law. And as a result of these false accusations, Stephen is on trial before the Sanhedrin. And just to remind you, the Sanhedrin is the most powerful religious and civil body in all of Jewish life. And this is how Stephen ends his speech to the Sanhedrin, again, the supreme religious and civil body in Israel. Stephen says this, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Just for a moment, could you imagine like a lawyer before the Supreme Court starting his argument with you stiff-necked people? Like, it's a direct denunciation. It's a very pointed rebuke. And in these verses, Stephen, he flips the table. Stephen's not on trial anymore. Stephen has put the Sanhedrin on trial. And Stephen has just pronounced them, the most powerful leaders in all of Jewish culture, He's pronounced them guilty for rejecting Jesus, Moses, the law, the temple, and God. And not one aspect of this situation is lost on Stephen. He knows who he's talking to. He knows exactly where he is. He knows that there's an angry mob watching and listening to every word that he speaks. And despite all of what's happening around him, he still speaks like a prophet. He stands in that place with those people in that crowd, and he speaks the gospel to them. And so when we get to verse 54 in the beginning of our passage, Luke leaves no doubt about the Sanhedrin's reactions to Stephen's speech. They respond with intense fury and rage. Luke writes, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen's speech has triggered in the Sanhedrin a kind of rage they're not able to control. People gnash their teeth 
when they are furious. It's a biblical expression for deep anger, uncontrolled anger. The Sanhedrin are no longer adjudicating a legal matter. They're now defending their reputation, their status, and their power in the Jewish community. And it's in this moment, Luke tells us, Stephen sees a vision of Jesus, and then that everything just explodes around Stephen. In verse 55, Luke writes, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. The Sanhedrin became so angry so quickly that they lose their grounding. They completely lose their grounding and their sense of ethics and morality. They've completely lost control of their emotions. It's like they've lost their direction altogether and are now blinded by their rage. And in their rage, they grab Stephen and drag him out of the city to stone him. And the passage ends with Luke writing, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep, which is a polite way for the biblical authors to say that somebody died. The language there at the end of that passage might sound familiar, and that's because it echoes the words Jesus spoke during his crucifixion. In the gospel Um, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Luke records Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What's happening here is a stunning depiction of Stephen walking in the ways of Jesus, even to the point of giving up his own life. Stephen doesn't return the Sanhedrin's anger with more anger. He doesn't respond to the injustice being perpetrated against him by rising up with some violent emotional reaction. He doesn't start picking up stones and throwing them back at the crowds. Rather than defend his own life, he prays for the hearts and the souls of the people killing him. And the temptation of a story like this is to read ourselves into it as the hero. It's what whiteness does to us. We read stories and then imagine ourselves in them as the hero. We imagine ourselves as Stephen. But if we're honest, the group of people we most identify with in this story are the Sanhedrin. I don't know many of us who, in the midst of feeling deep fury or rage or being super angry, have the wherewithal to stop and pray for the people who are angry with us, that, that are causing this anger in us. Like, when was the last time you got into an argument with someone? Those of you who are married, maybe it's just Julia and me, maybe you don't have fights, we do. I can't remember, honestly, the last time in the midst of an argument I caught myself and was like, I'm just going to pray for her right now. 
when we get into these places, right, we need to remember in this story, in this story we should be, invite, we should be identifying with the Sanhedrin. They get triggered. They feel anger. Their anger turns to rage. And in their rage, they choose to protect themselves by destroying Stephen. And church, we act out the same kind of patterns and cycles in our own lives that the Sanhedrin do. The psalmist in Psalm 103 describes God this way, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Again, to point it out, God describes himself as experiencing anger. Jesus experiences anger in the temple. The goal of the Christian life is not to somehow never get angry. The goal of the Christian life is can we begin to experience anger the way that Jesus and Stephen do? We are supposed to be people who are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. We are supposed to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Which is why I want to spend the rest of our conversation talking about four aspects of anger, four things related to anger. I want to talk about anger's inherent goodness. That might sound like a strange way to start. I want to talk about anger's inherent goodness. I want to talk about its capacity for destruction. I want to talk about how our anger is oftentimes rooted in disordered loves. And then how we might be able to take steps to become more like Jesus or in our story more like Stephen. So, first, we need to understand anger's inherent goodness. The ideal that's held up in the Old Testament isn't no anger. The ideal that's held up in the Old Testament and then embodied in the person of Jesus in Stephen is slow anger. Or as the biblical authors say it, be, being slow to anger. This is how God describes himself in Exodus 34. So in Exodus 34, God is giving the law to Moses. And God describes himself to Moses this way. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We're not supposed to be people who never experience anger. We're not supposed to be disembodied spiritual beings who never experience hard emotions. We're supposed to be people who are slow to anger. And who, because we're slow to anger, are able to remain in control of our words, thoughts, and actions in the midst of our anger. We're supposed to get angry when the people and things we love are threatened. We're supposed to experience anger when the people and things we love are threatened. Tim Keller said it this way, anger in its original and pure form is love in action moving against a threat to what you love. 
It's good and right for me to feel anger when something threatens Julia. A few years ago, through social media, someone threatened Julia's physical well-being. It was good and right for me to respond to that by feeling anger. I love Julia. She's worthy of defending. A threat was made against her, and I responded in anger. What I did not do was threaten the person back through social media. It's good and right for me to feel anger when my neighbor is experiencing injustice. I should feel anger when my neighbors are experiencing injustice. My anger should not rise up so quickly in me, though, that I go to the person or the offices of the organization perpetrating the injustice and just start throwing stones through windows. It's good and right for me to feel anger over the gun violence in our neighborhood. We should feel angry about violence in our neighborhood. I should not feel so angry about it that I decide to go get a gun and take matters into my own hands. Slow anger in response to a threat against something worthy of our love is inherently good. It's a reflection of God's character in us. It's a reflection of our God-instilled love for people and goodness and justice. So first, I think it's important for us to understand, to know, anger in its original and pure form is inherently good. But I think we're all very familiar with the second reality, the second point of our conversation. We need to understand anger's destructive power. We need to be aware of its destructive capacity. It's on full display in our passage. The Sanhedrin, who are quick to anger, who are triggered and enraged, choose in their anger and rage to destroy Stephen's body. Anger, as we see in this passage, and as many of us have experienced Anger has the power to kill, destroy, disintegrate, and demolish. Anger left unchecked is the dynamite of our souls. Unchecked, unaddressed, unacknowledged anger sits in our souls like dynamite, waiting to explode. Church, in our anger... What have we destroyed? In our anger, when we've been quick to anger, what have we harmed? When we are quick to anger and respond out of it, we use words like, weapons, words that wound and damage and harm. And oftentimes, 
damaged so deeply that we destroy relationships or that cause significant and sometimes even irreparable damage in relationships. When we're quick to anger, we lose the ability, just like the Sanhedrin did, to practice wisdom, to act rationally, to make healthy, God-honoring decisions, to actually hold our tongues because I think we've all experienced the reality that when we are feeling unchecked anger, we will say things that we would never otherwise say to people that we desperately and deeply love. When we're quick to anger, we become controlled by it. I imagine many of us have had these experiences that when we feel anger, when we feel fury or rage, we literally get stuck in it, that we have these moments where we don't even know how to end the argument anymore because the emotion has become so overwhelming and controlling. And when we're controlled by our anger, we give up our roles as redemptive agents and become destructive agents. So, anger in its original and pure form is good. But anger also has the power to destroy. The third part of this is that anger becomes destructive when our affections are disordered. I want to make sure that we get this and understand this. St. Augustine, an early church father from Africa, said the biggest problem we have is disordered loves. According to St. Augustine, the biggest problem we have as human beings is disordered affections and loves. For St. Augustine, disordered loves is what happens when we make secondary things into primary things and then turn those things into idols. Disordered loves are when we create idols out of things that were never meant to be idols, and then we orient ourselves around defending and protecting the things that we've turned into idols that, again, were never meant to be idols. When our idols are threatened, our anger can become destructive. Stephen threatened the Sanhedrin's idols directly. The law, the temple, and the land. And real quick, All three of those things were good gifts from God to his people. The law was a good gift. The temple was a good gift. The land was a good gift. All of them were tools intended to help the Jewish people grow in relationship with God, but they turned these secondary things into primary things, created idols out of them. And when Stephen comes to them and just questions them about the ways that they're actually following any of it, they're so angered that they kill him. And we're capable of doing the same. When we make social order and politeness primary things, we'll become more angry about a person's protest of injustice than we will about people experiencing actual injustice. When we make our own self, when we make our self, like our self identity, our self-respect and comfort, when we turn those into primary things that absolutely cannot be attacked under any circumstances, we'll be enraged by criticism, even if it's offered in love, even if that criticism, like Stevens, creates the opportunity for people to become more like Jesus. 
And just like Pastor Shaq taught us last week, when we take secondary things like our national identity, our constitution, and our economic system and make them primary things, we feel personally threatened when the goodness and supremacy of America or our economic system are threatened and we can react with anger that produces oppression and violence. Church, what have we destroyed because our own personal idols have been threatened? In my own life, something that I've had to work through is this deep need to be perceived as competent at all times. And I would like to share with you that 12-year-olds love to poke at your sense of competency. They really enjoy pointing out the moments that they think you're inconsistent as a parent. I'm just talking about mine. Maybe yours isn't like this. Maybe yours won't be like this. Mine loves to point out the moments where I'm inconsistent or the moments where she believes that I don't actually know how to do something as well as her mother does, which, let's be honest, happens a lot. Or maybe she is thinking that I, I have like meted out unfair punishment. She loves to tell me that she thinks oftentimes that my punishment of removing the phone is just draconian and harsh. And there are days where it feels like my sense of my need to be competent is just constantly under threat. Church, I love feeling competent. I love it. And when someone, even my 12-year-old, comes at me and calls my competency into question, anger (laughs) rises up. And there have been moments in that place where I have spoken things to her that like, I offer this lightly, but also honestly, I have spoken things to her in my anger that I'm pretty sure in her 20s she's going to work through with a counselor. For the record, I always try to seek repair. I always apologize. In our anger, like, there is absolutely no reason that competency should it be such an... Like, I have turned feeling competent into an idol, and when that feels threatened, I attack. There's absolutely nothing in following Jesus where Jesus is like, you have to be competent. In fact, culturally, he picked some really incompetent people to start the church with. We tend to do this in our own lives. We create idols out of things that were never meant to be idols. That's what I mean by disordered loves. I love competency and feeling it. So when it's attacked, I react. So church, anger in its original form is inherently good. Anger contains destructive power. And when our affections are disordered, our anger can be too. Lastly, when we are slow to anger, our anger has the chance of being redemptive. If we can be slow to anger, if we can take on this posture, our anger can be redemptive. 
Stephen had every right to be angry about the injustice he was experiencing. Every right. But it seems that his anger wasn't necessarily directed at the Sanhedrin as people. In his speech, his anger was directed at the Sanhedrin's hard-heartedness and sin. His anger was directed at the ways that they were using their power to lead people away from God instead of closer to God. And so Stephen, in his anger, he gives a speech, and then he is stoned. And rather than retaliate, he prays for them. Stephen is slow to anger, and because of that, he's able to embody the ways and character of Jesus, even as he's being unjustly killed. This is actually, just to say this real quick. In my life as a pastor, I have frequently had conversations with people where I will ask questions or, in my mind, invite them to a standard of what I think it means to live like and love like Jesus. And sometimes I will get a response from people that will say, yeah, but that was Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Like, Jesus could do that because he was the son of God. Jesus was perfect. Jesus didn't sin. I don't know why you expect me to be able to perfectly embody Jesus when I am not Jesus. I love the story of Stephen because Stephen wasn't Jesus. Stephen was as human as we are. He was from fallen, broken parents who were imperfect and marred by sin. Like, Stephen is as human as we are. And Stephen does what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus prayed for the people killing him, and Stephen prays for the people killing him. And because of Stephen, I think it's possible for us too. I think if we can become people who are slow to anger, our anger can become redemptive. And for our anger to become redemptive, we need to do work. When we feel anger, oftentimes we need to do this after the fact, reflection. We need to do the work of reflecting on our anger so that we can name what we felt and why. We felt anger, why? What was the thing that we felt was being attacked in us? What thing that I have loved? Like, and I think as we do this work, sometimes we'll learn, like this was a justified response of anger because something that I love, a person that I love was being threatened. But sometimes we'll realize I felt angry because my 12-year-old was attacking my sense of competency. We need to be able to name, acknowledge, and examine the source of our anger because that is the only way that we can begin to make sense of is it disordered anger, is it disordered love. And when we do this, we create opportunities to admit the ways we've hurt and harmed people in our anger. And we create opportunities to seek repair and forgiveness. We can only honestly apologize and seek repair and forgiveness if we're able to understand and make sense of why we have felt angry, what we felt was being attacked in us, so that we can do the work of trying not to react the same way going forward. When we don't do the work of examining our anger, we're likely to be controlled by it. But when we do, we can ask ourselves, what is it really that I love? Do I love my sense of competence?
competency or do I love my daughter, Keely? Which one do I love more? What is the thing that I'm defending and is it truly primary? So often when we ask ourselves this question, we'll discover the thing we're defending is a secondary thing. We might discover we're defending our ego, our pride, our reputation, our comfort, our self-preservation, our self-esteem. And when we recognize we're defending these secondary things, we can create the space to process and release our anger. To invite Jesus to help us reorder our love and affection so that primary things are primary things and secondary things are secondary things. Do we really need, for example, to return a harsh word with a harsher word when Jesus tells us we're his beloved? We need to be people who do the work of taking every thought and emotion captive. Paul gives us this instruction in his letters. When we do, we can examine our anger and work to identify its root. And when we can identify the root of our anger, we can be honest about whether or not our anger is righteous and just or if we're angry because our idols are being threatened. And when we do this, we create the opportunity to be like Stephen. So, church, let's do the hard work of wading into the complexity of anger. Let's acknowledge its destructive power and not allow it to overcome or control us. Let's recognize its potential good, allowing our hearts to experience righteous anger in the face of injustice and evil that moves us towards restoring what is broken. Let's be slow to anger and allow our anger to be rightly ordered. Let's not be triggered to offense or violence when secondary things are threatened. Let's do the work of examining our anger and allowing to God to reveal to us the things our hearts truly love. And let's allow our gracious and merciful Savior to realign our hearts, to reorder our loves that even when we experience anger, we might still somehow look like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Could we sit with these words? Could you settle them into our hearts? Father, that we might be able to be more like you. We love you and pray in your son's name. Amen.